Welcome to the Cognitive Rampage Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Lowry. As usual, I said it again, Steve, but I hope you're taking care of you. I hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. Uh, for all the funny responses we got back on the last episode, we just aired uh, the Rambling Rampage with my uh, childhood best friend and professional chef, Sean Zernis. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for all those funny comments. Uh, you will see some more of those rambling rampage type additions. Uh, that is where it is not a professional setting, but yet just some good friends having a good time. And we did it for five hours. So uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast, we are back to the original of what the Cognitive Rampage podcast does, which is pursue competence with a passion, questioning self, others, and everything else humbly and a chase for optimization and fine-tuning. Now, uh, my guest today is Dr. Mort Orman, who is an MD. And truthfully, you know, Doc, welcome to the show, man. That's as far as I'm going to go in introducing you, man. I, I think you should do the rest because uh, it's a long resume, my friend. <laughs> well, I'll try to shortcut it, but thank you for having me as a guest. So I'm an internal medicine physician, as you mentioned. Um, I practiced medicine for 23 years in Baltimore, and then I spent 15 years working as a medical director for a Blue Cross health plan in Pennsylvania. Uh, also, I'm an author and a speaker, and um, I'm the founder of the Stress Mastery Academy, and I've also been the um, official sponsor of National Stress Awareness Month every April in the U.S. for the last uh, 24 years. So I have a particular passion for uh, health promotion, true preventive medicine, and uh, wellness, and also stress um, elimination as opposed to stress mastery. Well, uh, that sounds stressful. No, not at all. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot of fun, <laughs> the way it should be. <laughs> uh, well, you caught my eye. You know, I'm always uh, looking around all the time. There's a, um, I don't know, five or six other um booking agents, if you will, talent hunters that are out there looking for people. And uh, I came across you personally in my LinkedIn um, group and was looking into what you were doing. And what caught me was your first original video actually on YouTube, where it's about 14 minutes long. And unlike many, many, uh, let's just say professional practitioners in general, um, that are willing to be transparent and share their direct experiences, you know, of what they treat with people you did. You became you. You were authentic, man. You were transparent, and that caught me. And I, you don't see that every day, man. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure which particular video you're referring to, but um, yeah, I like to do that. Um, uh, my own story. I mean, I basically got into this uh, field of stress from dealing with my own issues as a medical student uh, through my training, and uh, even as I, you know, once I got out of training and started practicing medicine, I had a a whole bunch of stress issues. I was very anxious all the time. I was angry and irritable and got frustrated with patients very easily and frustrated with, you know, trivial things and all the, all the uh, stressful aspects of being a physician and dealing with the bureaucracies and the stuff that many people experience on different levels. And, and it was always very puzzling to me because I had been a very successful person. I succeeded at most things I put my mind to. Um, and uh, I just could not, figure out how to deal with these stressful issues, not issues, not to mention relationship conflicts all over the place. Um, and, and it was just very disheartening, demoralizing. Um, and then you, you know how you have to put on that, uh, air of, uh, uh, of, of 
being the successful physician. So you're not supposed to let anybody know that, you know, you, you don't have it as all together as, as you're trying to appear to have. So that was an actually an added stress to have to carry that burden around and keep pretending all the time that, uh, you know, you were successful and happy when you may have been, you know, professionally successful, uh, but not all that happy. So, um, that was that I struggled with that for a long, long time. And, and it was very frustrating. I tried all the standard or most of the standard approaches, um, uh, all the stress management stuff, some alternative um, uh, medical approaches and things. And, and you know, a couple, th- including going into therapy, by the way. So I, I did that for a number of years and all the, that helped a little bit, but never really helped me get rid of any of these problems. It took a little of the edge off of them. And it was great to have somebody to talk to uh, on a regular basis. But, um, you know, I just never, never had that breakthrough that I was looking for. And that I think most people are looking for and probably many people have given up on um, just I, I see a lot of resignation in the stress area today. I mean, people people have tried different things. Very little of it has worked. They're kind of jaded that uh, they've kind of given up hope that they're ever going to be able to, you know, have lower stress lives and. And um, I was in that boat, uh, although I, w- I kept pushing. You know, I kept saying, no, no, it's, there's got to be an answer. <laughs> there's got to be a solution. <laughs> right. So I just, I just kept pursuing it and then uh, finally had some good fortune to, uh, you know, to get some new insights into what was really going on. And that's what really uh, – so it was very much a cognitive uh, sort of ra- – in your terminology, uh, I did a sort of a cognitive rampage on myself um, uh, of a major nature that, that, that sort of broke through everything that – the difficulty uh, yeah, I, I want to get to that, but I want to also, I want to go back to where I'm in this video. It was your YouTube video. You had a green screen behind you and you were telling your story of kind of when the stress really took a hold of you hard. And it was, uh, an MD when you were just entered, uh, Maryland for medical school. And yep. Yep. For people that don't know, what is that typical schedule? Like, what's it like in medical school? Oh God. Well, you know, when I look back on it now, I mean, I don't know how, how we ever did what we did, but you really, you give your whole life over for a number of years. Um, I mean, you're, you go to school in the morning and you, you're in school till five o'clock, six o'clock and you're studying, going classes and labs and this and that. Uh, those are the first couple of years. Uh, and then you're a third and fourth year, you're in the hospitals and organ rotations. Uh, and then you go, particularly the first and second years, and you go home at night and you're, you're studying, you're reading textbooks, you're studying, you're taking notes until you go to sleep. And then you uh, you repeat that over and over again. <laughs> you know, we used to we used to dread missing a day of class. Uh, you know, because you know there may be maybe ten or fifteen diseases being covered, <laughs> and you and you don't want to get behind. You know, because the stuff comes at you so fast. So it was uh, it was very demanding. But on the other hand, it was it was fun too because uh, the stuff you were learning was interesting, and it was it always mixed with a whole undercurrent of anxiety. Because you knew that, you know, at some point in time, you were going to have to take care of people and you needed to know this stuff. And so you, you, were, you were a real sponge. You were soaking it all up. It was all interesting and fascinating. And my God, you know, um, and, you knew, and you knew that you, you're going to need it someday, or at least most of it someday. So, uh, but, it, but we did it. And you basically give up your social life. Um, you, uh, even on weekends, you know, you have to put a number of hours in studying and catching up and stuff like that. So um, I remember at the time going through it, it, it actually wasn't as bad as when I think about it. 
<laughs> when I think about it now, I said, boy, I, I don't know if I could do that today. But <laughs> back then, we were young, you had a lot of energy and uh, a lot of enthusiasm and optimism. And, you know, it, 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 the time went by and uh, you barely noticed it, actually. You know, I, my wife is a uh, ARMP and she is in the emergency rooms all over here in Orlando. And, um, you know, she can come home in a random day and talk about something that would, you know, typically be devastating in a normal family conversation or something that's out there. I mean, from delivering or assisting in deliverance of cancer diagnosis, you know, to other things. And, um, you know, being so young, being so stressed out at that time, you know, running through all this, using all that energy, but you also happen to be around the sickest people and around death and these things all day as you're studying. Did did you find that affecting as well? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things I talk about is how um, we don't really realize this, but when you go, you know, people ask me how I get in, got into the stress field. I said, well, it's easy. I went to medical school. They, they actually teach you how to have stress. And it's not that they're teaching you to be stressed, it, but they're teaching you a philosophy and a mindset, and they're in, in instilling certain uh, patterns in you. I mean, if you think about it, what, what are some of the patterns you need to be a successful physician? Number one, you need to be a perfectionist. You can't go around making mistakes. You know, you can't misplace a decimal point in a prescription. You know, you can't miss a diagnosis. You can't you know, prescribe the wrong treatment. So you, there's a tremendous uh, indoctrination into perfectionism. There is a tremendous document, and this is one of the biggest things. Um, and this was the biggest barrier, actually, that I had to overcome, is that you are taught to have a disdain for being wrong. Like, that's the worst thing you could possibly ever... Whoa. You, that's, that's you're, you're, taught, you're taught to be right, you're taught to, uh, you know, face your beliefs on science and the and the latest knowledge, uh, and to be very, you know, smart and well read and and uh, know the literature backwards and forwards, and, and you're basically taught to be right, which is a which is not a bad thing when you're functioning when you have your professional hat on, you know. Um, the problem is when you go home and you take that attitude into your relationships. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to be right and you want to be right all the time and, you know and you expect other people to be perfect all the time it kills that's a relationship killer wow yeah and um and and uh we we don't often see that you know it's like you see the these these personality traits that get instilled into you and the other one is control by the way so as a physician you are you're taught to take control and oftentimes you do have to take control, like in a life-threatening situation, someone has a cardiac arrest or someone's acutely ill, you have to step in, take charge, take control. Um, and so, so if you look at those three patterns right there, perfectionism, wanting to be right, and control, those are three of the biggest causes of stress in all areas of life. Yeah, I and was going to say they're all pretty irrational too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but – that that's what make that's what makes great physicians. I you mean, know what? I, I, it, you know I, what I mean. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's a double edged. It's a double edged sword. You know, you gotta. The trick is you gotta be able to um, be flexible with it. You know, you apply it where it's appropriate, and you let it go. You know, in other areas of life where it's not, and a lot of doctors find that they get stuck in being that way all the time, and they just it's just automatic, and uh, it, it tends to become automatic in all of us, uh, ingrained and automatic. And um, it takes some effort, some psychic energy and conscious intent to um, 
be able to inhibit that automatic tendency that's been drilled into you for seven years, you know? Man, and, I, I can imagine, like, even as a therapist, you know, there's many, many, many jaded practitioners out there that have spent years in rehabs, recoveries, and they just get jaded. And yeah. Because you, know, you lose way more than you win in that field. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as precise in therapy, as you know. Right. Um, I can tell you some funny stories about that. But um, we could go all day about <laughs> how much therapy gets on my nerves sometimes. <laughs> That's why I don't do it anymore. Uh, I have some really funny, uh, very unusual experiences in the therapy field uh, that, that most people don't have. So oh, but if we, if we have time, if we have time, we, maybe we can get into that. But um, yeah, so that was one of the, that, that was one of the big things um, that the, particularly the, the, the being the always needing to be right. Now, I think most people are inflicted with that. I mean, uh, it, I it's fun say, doc, that we rock around doing that anyway, as humans. Yeah. Yeah. But it gets it really gets um, exaggerated in a field like medicine. It, it's probably no different than the military. You know, if you're, uh, I see a lot of similarities between military thinking and medical thinking. Is that you, you know, you make a mistake, somebody dies. <laughs> yeah, true though. Yeah. So you 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 you're geared. You're training. Your all your training is designed, and it's not just. In, I'm sure there are other fields where it's um, it's critical also, but. How close to uh, it are you saying is like almost the hypervigilance that you're taught? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And there's that uh, undercurrent of anxiety that, oh, my God, I hope, you know, I better not screw up. And then you got, you know, a whole cadre of lawyers out there waiting for you to make one little mistake. Oh my God, <laughs> and and they, they jump or even not even make a mistake, just the perception of a mistake. And they jump all over you. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I argue so, that's a big issue with our medical field today, man, is that doctors, they can't be doctors. They have to respond safely. They got to do things. They got to, they can't really just do what their practice is. They, they're just threatened on all sides from patients, from lawyers, from anxiety, inner self. I absolutely. mean, it's yeah, a it's, war. You mentioned yeah. in your video that uh, about practitioners and a high rate of suicide, even. Absolutely. You see it in, uh, you see it in the medical profession, profession, you see it in the dental profession. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the statistics are in the, um, in the world of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists, but I'm sure it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not small. Um, and, uh, it's really a shame. Um, and, and a lot of it, you know, it, it's the same issue. It's the same core issues that I'm sure you deal with, uh, that we all have to deal with personally. And that is getting being in an, a human being. You live in societies. You get uh, you get indoctrinated and conditioned to believe certain things and accept certain beliefs that are passed down to you. And and a large percentage of them aren't really true, and they cause a lot of mischief and difficulty in our lives. I, I remember the first day of medical school. Day one, it was a late late August in 1969. So uh, there were 144 students in our freshman class at the University of Maryland. We all got herded in. In the first morning we come to medical school, of course, we're all anxious. We don't know what to expect. We're all herded into a um, an audit, big auditorium for about a half an hour where the uh, we get some information. And then, then the dean comes out and gives us a little rah-rah speech and uh, before we go off to class. you know. And uh, he, say, he say, basically said two things to us. He said, um, so congratulations, you've just completed the hardest part of medical school, <laughs> which is getting in. <laughs> right, right. He said, if you could get in, you can do the work. Don't worry about it. Relax. 
you know, we're not here to fail you out. We're here to help you succeed. <laughs> and believe me, it took us almost a year to to agree with <laughs> agree right. with that because because yeah. we all came from very you know to get into medical school in college we had to be super competitive and get a you know high GPA and and compete with all the other you know people trying to get into the limited number of spots. So, and we took that same competitiveness into our medical school, figuring that okay, if I'm gonna if I'm going to graduate, I've got to be competitive. And that was completely false assumption because they, they really bent over backwards to help anybody who was struggling and, uh, and everybody really was able to do the work. Just a matter of putting the time in and, and the, the, the dedication into it. It wasn't that it was complicated, any more complicated than college. But um, so then the second thing he told us, which we also didn't believe, um, but turned out to be true, was that he said, uh, unfortunately, uh, I want to let you all know that um, – at least 50% of everything you're going to learn in the next four years is going to turn out to be wrong. Oh. But, but I can't tell you right now which 50% that is. <laughs> right. So you have to apply because you're outdated. Every <laughs> and, you know, it turned, you know, now I'm 40 some years out of uh, medical school and I can tell you that exactly happened. I mean, um, every five or six years, about a quarter of the stuff that I thought I knew you know, got replaced by other insights and other research and new developments and new understandings. And uh, the old things we thought for sure were true turned out not to be so true. You remember and, one or two of those or one specifically? Oh, yeah, there was. Oh, there are a number. So there was um, we were taught that. Uh, so penicillin um, works on certain bacteria and it only works on bacteria that have a, a polysaccharide, like a carbohydrate type cell wall. Many, most bacteria don't have a, an outer casing sort of a cell wall, but some species do. And the ones that do, those are the ones that penicillin kills and it doesn't kill other ones. So what, what was learned at the time when penicillin first came out is you would give it to people, they would get better, you would test their blood and there would be fragments of these um, bacterial cell walls in the bloodstream indicating that the cell walls had been damaged and broken up. And the theory was that that's what cause the bacteria to die. That penicillin had this like detergent effect on the outer wall of these bacteria. It, it destroyed the cell walls and caused the cells to die. And everybody thought that was how penicillin worked. And then about 10 years later, uh, they developed a technology to separate intact cell walls from living bacteria. So you, without, this, without damaging them. Okay, so you get like empty empty cell walls and then the, the bacterial, you know, living bacteria over in another compartment. And so you could, uh, you could accumulate these cell walls. So some guy got this idea. I said, well, I'm going to go validate this theory. I'm going to take a bunch of cell walls that I have in this beaker here. And I'm going to dump penicillin in and I'm going to prove that, you know, it, dis it disintegrates the cell walls. So he did that and nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> the penicillin did nothing <laughs> to the cell walls at all. <laughs> oh. And it was later later determined that, and I don't know, it might have changed, you know, from when, from when I had this understanding. But um, what happens is um, a little bit of penicillin leaks through the cell walls and it, it, it gets incorporated into the mitochondria or the cellular structure of the bacteria, causes the bacteria itself to produce an enzyme. And that enzyme that the bacteria itself produces destroys its own cell wall. So basically penicillin causes the bacteria to commit suicide is what it does. <laughs> it 
<laughs> science is so wild. Even it's down to its basics like that. Even when you hear it, you know, the way it goes down, you're like, man, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy to think that all someone had to do was pour some penicillin on some bacteria. <laughs> yeah, it's a simple little experiment. And he was just trying to confirm what everybody believed so he could pu- publish a paper and say, I confirmed it. Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, it's like, well, hey, what happened here? You know, this is supposed like, to work. This that, how much that happens in medicine to where people just kind of say this is the norm and people don't really look to either differentiate or differential diagnosis, whatever that is, or test it out. I mean, how many times do we just go with the norm? Uh, You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. I mean, I have a a family. I have a family story that's very relevant because my uh, uncle, who um, I grew up sort of idolizing as a child, and then one of the reasons why I ended up going into medicine, he became a, he went into medical school, became a cardiologist, and he was the first person trained in the world to do coronary artery catheterizations by the person who invented the procedure. Wow. The person who invented the procedure was named Mason Soans, and he was a cardiologist at the University of Maryland. And um, cardiac catheterization, where they take a catheter, put it through um, an artery, run it, run the little catheter back into the heart and inject some dye, so you can get uh, x-ray pictures, fluoroscopic pictures of the functioning of the heart, had been, had been done for many years, but it was done only for assessing the chambers, you know, the, the four chambers of the heart and the valves or congenital heart problems in kids. You can get a picture of sort of the inner workings of the mechanical structure of the heart. But it was, it was believed at that time that if you got that catheter anywhere near the little openings at the, um, to the three little blood vessels that's, that nourish the heart called the coronary arteries that actually give blood and oxygen to the heart muscle itself. If you put that little catheter anywhere near the tip of those arteries and injected dye into them, you would, you would kill the person. So it was a taboo. Everybody who was trained to do that procedure, um, that was a no-no. You know, that was a, that was a sin to get in. You had to be very careful that you didn't, you knew exactly where you were before you pushed that button that injected the dye. And that that would, that would kill you. No real evidence. They just kind of hypothesized that that would happen. That was, yeah, that was just made common sense to them and everybody, and that was what everybody was taught. And that's what everybody believed. Okay. And so no one would ever get near doing that. And then one day this guy, Mason Stones accidentally screwed up and, and the catheter got lodged in, in the artery and he shot the dye thinking he was in the chamber, one of the chambers. And lo and behold, he sees this incredible picture for the first time any, anybody had ever seen a live, you know, picture of coronary arteries in a living, breathing person and lying on, on the table. And he sees this and, he, and his first response is, oh, crap. <laughs> and, but nothing happened to the person. The person was fine. And he went, oh, my God, that uh, the person didn't die. That's amazing. And, and look at these pictures. <laughs> it's like nobody's ever seen this before. <laughs> you don't want your cardiac surgeon to say <laughs> when you're laying on the table. You know, that's he, right. You know, I don't, he think he, I don't think he said it, but he was definitely feeling it. I'm sure. You know, he played it off, though. He looked up. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what we thought would happen. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so then he did a few more on the side, just sort of surreptitiously. And um, nothing bad happened. And he did a whole bunch more. I think he did a couple hundred before he finally came out of the closet and said, hey, this, is, this isn't as dangerous as we thought it was. And then so um, he got a lot of flack. I mean, people were just people thought it was really dangerous, still thought it was dangerous. They wouldn't let go of their belief. And um, 
so he was looking for somebody to train. So he, he trained my, uh, he asked my uncle if he wanted to learn and my uncle didn't have a particular direction in his cardiology career at that time. So he said yes. And um, so he trained my uncle and then um, Cleveland Clinic Lord Mason Sones away. They built a cath lab for him in Cleveland and a small hospital in Connecticut built a cath lab for my uncle and both of them left Maryland and they, they started, you know, they started teaching other doctors how to do this and they started, uh, you know, taking care of patients and seeing all the stuff that nobody ever seen before. And it took like 10 years before many of the cardiologists would refer them patients because they still believed it was a dangerous procedure and that, you know, whether the one patient they sent over was going to die, <laughs> you know, so they, they wouldn't do it. It, it. it really took a long time for them, even with all the evidence and, and, and the amazing um, degree of accuracy that it gave to cardiac diagnoses that wasn't available before. I mean, I used to go up um, every summer when I was in school, um, late high school and college, I would go up and my, spend a week with my uncle in Connecticut and he would take me into this cath lab and he would show me these pictures and he'd tell me these stories of these people. Some people were, were seen by their cardiologists and they said, um, you better get your affairs in order because you've got bad coronary disease and you're going to have a heart attack and die very shortly. And I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and he would cat them and they would have absolutely no disease in their coronary arteries at all. And then the other, you'd see the other spectrum as well. You'd see people who were given a clean bill of health. There's now oh, you got a little chest pain, no big deal. He catheterized them and, and they had disease all over the place, you know, and, and everything in between. So um, I can only hit, sit here and just say for 10 years as those MDs battled this guy, how many people could have been saved? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm telling you, it was a battle. I mean, it was a political, it was a political battle. There were turf wars. There was all kinds of stuff that went on. Um, and, and it was, uh, you know, and they just kept plugging away and doing, you know, and training additional people and, and getting it out there. But, um, you know, now it's, now it's commonplace. It's done everywhere. It's done thousands of times all around the world. <laughs> and, uh, wow. nobody, nobody blinks an eye about it today, but, uh, it's the truth. You know, when I look at your story, man, is I, I had a question that keeps jumping out at me is, you know, with doctors trained as they are, the positives in it, the negatives in it, you know, I see all that very much so. And I can see, though, to where when you're trained to take control, can't make mistakes, perfectionism, and as well as competition, and you can't mm -hmm. right. When you take all that in, I wonder, A, how do they get better? Because, I mean, humility, questioning yourself, I mean, that is science, is being able to say, hey, I could be wrong here. You know? That's right. How that's the hardest that's the hardest thing for doctors to do that was that was the hardest thing for me to do i mean the the breakthrough that i had in stress really came from me being willing to look at all of the dogma and all of the ideas that were out there about stress that had been accepted by everyone that were printed in every self-help book you could buy on in any bookstore any textbook on stress and psychology any of the literature that you read and for me to be able to say all that stuff is hogwash it's maybe not a hundred percent hogwash but it's a good a good bit of it <laughs> it's coming from a whole it's coming from a whole faulty base of assumptions that nobody is willing to challenge it's like the emperor has no clothes syndrome you know yeah. um 
and and to finally be able to sort of pierce through that and wait and say to yourself wait a second what if all this crap is wrong you know what if that's the reason why i haven't been able to solve this problem what if that's why most of our stress approaches aren't effective you know and you could say the same thing about you know as i know your area of interest is addiction what if you said the same thing about addiction treatment you know that it's all based on a bunch of misconceptions and I, I know I, I know <laughs> it's a disease how about that yeah. one <laughs> that's right that's right yeah <laughs> yeah and um it's uh but to have but you know how hard it was it was so hard for me to do that because it's just it was just hard for me to admit that so for example i, re I remember i remember sitting in uh in college i was at duke university I was a pre-med student. Duke had a big engineering school and the engineering students and the pre-med students were in the same classes together. We had the advanced science courses. So we had an advanced physics course rather than the regular run-of-the-mill college physics course. And I remember in my second year sitting in a um, physics advanced physics class where they exposed us for the, I got exposed for the first time to quantum mechanics, okay? I never knew any, I never heard of quantum mechanics. I never knew about quantum mechanics. But as a result of this lecture, the the implication of this lecture is quantum mechanics exists. It's a, it's a new field. And it basically disproves everything, uh, everything, uh, all the laws of Newtonian phys physics are incorrect. <laughs> and I went like, Wait a second. They're they're in textbooks. I memorized them when I was in high school. I got straight A's in physics when I was in high school. <laughs> I can quote you chapter and verse on Newtonian physics. And you're telling me none of that is true? <laughs> that yep. Those laws are not correct? And that, that blew my mind. But, you know, it, um, it, it was very disconcerting, as I'm sure it was for most of the physicists at the time who would, you know, that, that, that whole system of thought had been around for 300 years. Uh, and everybody had, had completely, you know, bought into it and based their whole reputations and their personal identities on it, you know. So for somebody to come along, and it's like Einstein came along and said, oh, by the way, you know, you know, you think that time and distance are what you think they are. Well, they're not. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he was almost stoned, you know, for for saying that, you know. Yeah, well, it's all the game changers like that are. I mean, I, I always yeah. point out Freud, right? Even though he's, you know, a lot of his uh, psychosexual stuff has been looked at as whatever. But to be honest about it, if you go back to the time when it was either spirits or religion or you had bad colors or chemicals, and this guy was brave enough to go, uh, no, it's because you want to sleep with your mother. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that was a game changer. It was nuts. And then Albert Ellis later to come to say it's not about how you feel. It's what you think. You know, you're I mean, these are game changers, man. And for, absolutely. Absolutely. And now and also in the field with epigenetics versus genetic, you know, what's more influential? You see that argument now, too. Sure. Sure. Mind blowing stuff. Uh, Mind blowing yeah. stuff. Yeah, but, you, but, you know, you're right. You need but you need that. For me, I found that the best stress reliever that I've ever discovered is the willingness to be wrong. And I keep doing that over and over again. I've been doing it for 30 years. It worked 30 years ago. It worked 25 years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> it works today. I'm constantly, I'm constantly open. Now 
I wasn't so I wasn't early on in my career, but now I am constantly open for discovering where I might be wrong, where I might be harboring false or incomplete or inaccurate beliefs. I welcome those opportunities now. I even consciously put myself in places where I can be exposed to people who think differently than me so that I can, you know, uh, true up my my understandings as best as possible, knowing knowing all on that whatever I think I believe now might not be true tomorrow or, you know, a year from now. And just having that flexibility and that willingness. And, and I find that's the very, you know, I'm working with people, working with individuals, as I'm sure you've found, that's a very hard thing for people to be open to. We all are more, we protect our beliefs. We, we defend our beliefs. You know, we go to rallies and punch people in the face, you know, to, to, um, to validate our beliefs so we don't have to look at them honestly <laughs> and, and assess them. <laughs> yeah. We, and yeah. We much, yeah. Much rather cast the judgment because I'm, you know, I, I said this this morning to a friend doc and I thought it was great. Um, I was watching this little series on HBO called Rome and one of the guys is walking and he's talking to a young girl about, um, she looks at the poor disgustingly. And he basically says, um, do you know why the poor disgust us so? And he answers by saying, it's because they remind us of what we really are without the perfume, without the colorful threads and the gold. That's what they do. And so when people challenge what you believe, they challenge your value and they show you that you could be wrong. And you already said it. We will not be wrong. Yep. Yep. Anything wow. but that. Anything but that. <laughs> yeah. I think I just found the first doctor in my life that ever prescribed humility. Well. I'm sure there. I'm sure there are others that have, but uh, you know, it's definitely something that I found to be very useful. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying I'm the first or the only. <laughs> well, I'll say it for you. I can be irrational. <laughs> so walk me through it. I mean, we're, we're you figuring this out as you're through. When did when did you actually start to? Because you have your own, what I love. You have your own approach to this that is yours. That you say no one else is doing that I love. When did the development of this begin? And then eventually, let's get into what that thing is. That began around thirty some years ago. Um, like I say, I was uh, it was way after. I mean, my stress began along way before that. But um, the the breakthrough. Uh, the breakthrough happened in a very short period of time from a cognitive, oh my God, what if everything is wrong? Once you, once you have that crack and you open that door, then it becomes, okay, now I got to find out what's true, what's not true, what, what's a better way of thinking that, you know, that took a while. That took maybe a couple years. And I actually, you know, put myself in, in, uh, in different learning environments where I was exposed to a lot of really forward thinking people, pioneer type thinking people, um, because I was open, you know, to that. And so, and then I was formulating ideas on my own and having experiences of my own. And, um, it, it's really funny. I, um, I had been, so I, 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 so I had this personal transformation where I completely got rid of a lot of the anxiety that I had. I stopped being an angry person. I uh, stopped getting irritable and frustrated. Um, I started seeing my patients differently and they weren't frustrating to me anymore. Um, I clean, cleaned up a lot of my relationship problems and stopped generating new ones. Uh, I, I had a, just a whole, you know, personal transformation. And then I, and, and, and you know, again, as being a physician, when I, you go through that and you say, well, my God, no, you know, we have to get this out there. I mean, 
there are a lot of people suffering from stress. I'm seeing them every day in my office with the end results of, you know, lifetime of stress and all the diseases that it produces. And we got this, you know, ineffective stress management mindset and a set of practices that isn't really helping a whole lot of people. And here's something that really could. And, oh my God, this is something that's we got to do. So I started thinking, I, I got to see if I can. So I had the personal breakthrough. Could I teach somebody else to, to have a similar type of change in their life? And so I started talking to a couple of people and toying with the idea of giving, um, putting together a seminar. And um, I wasn't sure whether I was going to do it or not. And I was actually at my hospital on a, on a Saturday morning. I made rounds when I had a couple of patients in the hospital. I made rounds and I finished rounds. I'm sitting in the lobby of the hospital reading the morning paper, minding my own business. <laughs> and the head of the HR department of the hospital was happened to be in there that morning. He was leaving the building and he runs, he, he walks past me and he, he stops and he says, oh, hey, I heard that, um, I heard that you do stress seminars. <laughs> and I sort of nodded. I didn't say that. I sort of nodded. And he said, we were thinking about doing a stress seminar for, for the hospital employees. Would you be interested in doing it? And I looked at him very confidently, like I've been doing this all my life. And I said, sure, I'd love to do it. <laughs> 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 and so I said, great, we'll set it up. Uh, come talk to me uh, Monday morning. We'll, we'll go through all the details. I said, fine. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I, left, I left that morning. I ran home. And the first thing I did is I called this friend of mine who actually was doing stress seminars. <laughs> he was a psychologist who was doing stress management seminars. And I told him what happened. And I said, will you help me? I got to do my first, gotta do my first uh, seminar. I'm not sure how to do it. Uh, will you work with me? And we'll do it together. And that's what got me off the ground doing that. But but then as I started, and so I got started sharing these principles and these insights with other people in seminars and workshops. And not only did they learn a hell of a lot from me in these workshops, but I kept learning from them because, you know, they would, I'd be talking and I'd be laying out sort of a framework of general principles for dealing with stress that could apply to any stressful problem the person was struggling with. And then the people would pop up and they say, well, I've got this situation or I've got this problem or I've got this family situation or this financial situation or this work conflict or this crisis of, I don't know, you know, what my purpose is in life or what I should be doing, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, and I'd work with them through the principles and they would see some new things they hadn't seen about it before. But I would, at the same time they were seeing it, I was seeing it and everybody in the room was seeing it. And so we were all learning at the same time that I was teaching. And uh, so that just kept adding to the experience and the personal life situation, um, situations that different people go through. And, and the principles were, were generic enough. They applied pretty much to anything. Uh, you just have to figure out how to, how to uh, make use of them. But uh, so that's what I do. I sort of have this whole set of principles and a whole framework of understanding stress that's very different from what's being taught today. And uh, in fact, I just gave a, um, I gave a TEDx, my first TEDx talk at a high school in uh, New Jersey um, a month Congratulations, ago. Man, Congratulations. Yeah. And it was, a, and the topic was what, what, sh what we should be teaching kids about stress in high school. Oh, and man. You uh, are it was very well, it was very well received. And, uh, it, I mean, it's stuff that's definitely not being taught today. It's very much cognitive behavioral kind of a, a, a model. And, um, 
these are things that these are things you know i talked to him you know about anger for example and you know by the time you graduate high school you should have an understanding of what kind of what are the thought processes that produce anger in a human being what are the thought processes that produce anxiety and they're you can list them you know you, you it's knowable and and isn't it a crime that uh, most people graduate high school and college today and they do not have that information which i I've transmitted to them in five minutes. <laughs> you know, yeah, I've uh, I've done a few podcasts to where I've been upset that you know my daughter. I have a sixteen-year-old, uh, way smarter than me, but she's in um, psychology classes, and you know they're still teaching them the this guy founded and this year this theory this this. And I did a whole podcast where I just said, listen, we need to at least teach these kids, you know, like you, what anger is, how anger is really just hurt and fear. And it manifests through assumptions and expectations. You know, we teach these kids some actual psychological tools, not just yeah. who discovered it. Yeah. And what are the specific expectations? I mean, there are very specific expectations that go along with anger. There are very specific frameworks of looking at something, an event or something that somebody did to produce anger. And if you don't look at it that way, you don't get anger. You know, and so you ought to know what those are, you know, because um, it, it's very useful. I mean, if you want to go through them here on the podcast, we can certainly do that. But um, yeah, you know what? I, I love to learn, man. Like I'm I am in your class right now. Dark, right. So uh, so, here's, so here's what I showed. Here's what I showed the and, and I teach this to all, most of my clients and you can do it for lots of different emotions. But anger since such a prominent one. Um, so this is what I told the high school's students and there were about a hundred and hundred hundred fifty of them there uh, for the talk it, it's kind of like this it's kind of like i said imagine yourself being in front of a, a computer and you got a monitor and a keyboard okay and you push the letter a on the keyboard and the letter a appears on the computer screen and i said okay what caused what caused the letter a to appear on the computer screen and most people would say, well, obviously, somebody pushed the A key. That was the cause. And, and I said, yeah, that's true. They pushed it. But that's not the whole story. I said, what else has to be present? What else has to be there for that to happen? What, what other causes have to be in play? And the answer to that is there, ha there are a set of invisible causes that we don't see, but they have to be there. So there has to be a software program in the computer that somebody had to write. It's in a specific language. It has to be very precise. And it basically, when you press the letter A, it tells the, it tells the screen to light up these pixels in this particular configuration. So you get a letter A and you don't get B or X or Z or some random set of pixels, you know? And so there's a, there's a program running in the background. And if that program, it's invisible, but it has to be there. Computer techie people know about it, but most of us average folks it's invisible to us. We don't care as long as we, we push the A key and the A appears on the screen. That's all we care about. But the truth is there has to be a program running in the background. And it's the same for our emotions. Uh, we're not machines, but we function in many ways like biologic machines. Um, so somebody pushes our button or somebody says something to us or looks at us a certain way or espouses a certain point of view. And that triggers us and then we feel angry. All right, so we see the triggering event. We feel the emotion and we put two and two together and we say, that's what caused me to be angry. You know, what they said, what they did, how they looked at me, the tone of voice they used, you know, the, the fact that they whatever, you know. But 
the question is, what's the program running in the background that had to be activated by that? Do you know what that is? It's invisible, but it's running in your body. And it's a thought, it, it consists of thoughts and also behaviors. And it's usually the thoughts, like you say, are mostly uh, responsible for triggering the emotion. The behaviors sometimes can trigger it, but also will keep it persisting a lot longer uh, than it needs to. But so what are the thoughts? How do you have to be thinking in order to get angry? Well, the first thing you have to be thinking is that somebody did something bad or wrong or something they shouldn't have done. You know, we really don't usually get angry if we see something as being right or terrific or, wow, that was a great thing you just did. You know, we don't. We don't get angry. We have we see it uh, from a negative frame, from the frame that it was something bad or wrong and shouldn't have been done. The second thing we see is we have to see is that somebody was hurt or harmed or inconvenienced or um, uh, um, any other kind of negative consequence, disappointed, you know, embarrassed, humili humiliated, let down, betrayed, you know physically injured, whatever it is, some, uh, some negative consequence of the bad and wrong thing that was done, okay? And again, you have, usually even if somebody does something bad and wrong, but nobody gets hurt or harmed, it's like, you know, we don't get too exercised about that. But when we get those two things together, somebody did something bad or wrong, somebody was hurt or harmed or inconvenienced or offended or insulted or negatively impacted, uh, then that goes a long way towards generating the anger emotion. And then the third thing is there's always a conversation of blame. And it's usually what I call, it's very one-sided. It's called, I call it unilateral blame. And it's usually that the person who did the first and the second thing are, are, is 100% responsible or to blame for what happened. And everybody else is, has nothing to do with it, you know, particularly myself. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it. It's all on them. And uh, they did something bad or wrong. They hurt or harmed somebody, and they're 100% responsible. You get those three things together, you have anger, okay? And then the fourth piece, which, again, is another expectation, comes from our society. Uh, and our expectation that we've been taught to believe in our society is when somebody does something bad and wrong, they hurt or harm somebody, and they were 100% responsible, what should they do? They should own up to the fact they did something bad and wrong. They should admit it. They should offer to make amends or possibly be punished. Okay. And Justice. just, yeah. And, and notice just, and, and this is interesting because just from our own experience, what happens when you see somebody that angers you, they do you see them doing something bad and wrong, hurting, harming somebody, they're responsible and you go up to them and you point it out to them. Okay. And expecting them to, own up to it and they don't doesn't what does it do to your doesn't that make you even more angry of course they challenged my value belief at that moment and then denied what i believe to be true right they're, they're in denial and and you get you get pissed because now they're it's bad enough they did the bad thing but now they're not owning up now they're not fulfilling that expectation they so challenged us. they've challenged us now too to say that yeah. now what you believe in value is right is now wrong yeah. So the reason why it, it, it doubles or triples our anger is because it feeds right back into that same cycle. So it was bad or wrong for them to be in denial and not admit what they did. Uh, it disappointed us or it hurt us or it rejected. we felt rejected or our point of view is rejected or whatever by their refusal. They were 100% responsible for refusing. They could have taken our advice or our input and, and admitted it. So it just 
the cycle just repeats again, you know, just one on top of the other. And you get a double whammy of anger when that happens. So, but that's the mechanism of anger. And what's fascinating about that is, A, we don't see any of that. We get this knee-jerk reaction and it all happens so fast we don't see it, okay? And then we don't know how to, we don't know how to challenge it or we're not even interested in challenging it. But if you're in, like you say, if you wanted to go on a cognitive rampage, against the beliefs that were causing you to be angry in that moment, it really helps to know what the hell they are. <laughs> if, and and I, I give these things to people on index cards. Uh, I actually print them out for them on index cards. Keep this card around with you. And you can take those, those three or four things that we just talked about, put them on an index card, put it in your pocket, and not that you're going to use it in the middle of an angry you know, uh, interaction with someone, but when you're when you're removed from the situation and you want to understand what happened, what went down and why you felt the way you did, you take that little card out and you'll see that exactly how you were thinking. And then, then you can start questioning, yeah, well, is that really true? Did they really do something bad or wrong? Did, was I really, was somebody really hurt or harmed? And the big one is, was I really, did I really have nothing to do with it? <laughs> were they totally hundred percent responsible? Well, you know, all you got to do is poke holes in one of those three things and your anger will, will just, will just dissolve, you know, when you start seeing something differently. And it, it's an amazing thing. Um, and we've all had this experience. I'm, I mean, for example, one of the stories, one of the examples I use is we've all had somebody that we've made an arrangement to meet us sometime in the future. And we've told, and it was very important that they show up on time. We told them that they said they understood. We're at the place at the time and expecting them to be there. They're not there. And we start making up all the stuff in our head about how they they were just irresponsible and you shouldn't have counted on them and you never can trust them and 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 uh, you know you get all this stuff going on about how negligent they were and and you know ten minutes later and you're all getting all angry ten minutes later they show up they're all frazzled they you know they're just apologetic as could be they were in a major you know traffic jam they couldn't get out they left a half hour early once you find out that they were being conscientious and the circumstances intervened and they, they couldn't do anything about it your anger just goes away right you, you like we learn their intentions and then it's okay yeah but you don't have to the interesting thing is you don't have to take deep breaths you don't have to count to 10 you don't have to punch a punching bag or run 10 miles you it, it dissolves because the the, the internal reality that was driving it, which wasn't really real, but it seemed real, is found out to be phony. Okay. And the minute you find that out, it doesn't, you can't drive the anger anymore because you don't believe it anymore. You know, it's not true. But and, and we don't always get that fortunate circumstance where the person shows up and gives us the, re, the reality. But you can do that work on your own, you can do that cognitive rampage on yourself. And say, wait a minute, is what's the reality here? Is this or is this thought really true? Is this thought really true? Is is this thought really true? And a lot of times you'll be able to poke holes through it and um and uh make your anger realize that you're angry for the wrong reasons or you really didn't need to be angry because you were misperceiving things or you had an automatic assumption about something that turned out to be not correct or an expectation that might have been you know unreasonable or irrational. Um, it, it, it's amazing how often that happens in life. I mean, I'm talking about every day. <laughs> Multiple. For some people, it's every hour. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? For some mm. people, 
to battle that anger, that hurt, and that fear every hour. I mean, I, yeah. I went through my concerns. You know, what you brought out is I wrote down see, hear, say, and seek because we see something wrong or we hear something wrong. We say something wrong and then we blame something wrong and then seek out the judgment or what must happen. And so I like that. I and mean, I like that I pulled out from it the see, hear, say, seek. Yep. Yep. And, you know, it's one of, uh, one of the things that, that I do differently than most other stress people do is when I do a workshop or when even somebody comes to work with me one-on-one, one of the first things I do is I help them, uh, I help them get a better understanding of what it means to be human. And we kind of skip over that or we kind of assume that we know what it means to be human. So nobody talks about it. Nobody delves into it. Nobody, questions, you know, the prevailing assumptions or even the lack of certain distinctions that should be there. And then we get into, let's get into dealing with your stress. (laughs) Okay. But you know, you're a human being with stress. So I think we need to start at what a human being is first, because if you don't have that foundation or if that foundation is faulty, everything built on it, it's going to be faulty. And that's in fact, what's happening a lot today is that, um, People are building these foundations uh, to help people deal with various problems in life, and they're built on a, on a less than ideal model of what it means to be human. So there's a lot of aspects I can go into a, about that, but there's three that I, I tend to focus on very heavily, and three principles or distinctions about being human that are have a lot to do with why we have stress and why we have other problems in life. And the first one is blind spots. We we are, we have we are biologically constructed in such a way that we naturally have we naturally have blind spots. We have biologic and physical blind spots. So, you know, can you so look into the can you look in my direction right now, Adam? Mm-hmm. So can you can you tell me what's going on in the monitor behind you? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you got a blind spot. <laughs> and when you're looking forward, you can't see what's behind you. Um, we have blind spots uh, in terms of our senses. You know, we there's certain wavelengths of light that are out there that we can't see. There, uh, you know, in the room, in both the ro- your room that you're in and the room that I'm in, there's all these radio signals and television signals and wireless signals and and who knows what other kinds of electromagnetic stuff going on that we can't see. There's oxygen in the air that we can't see, smell, taste, uh, or, or be aware. And apparently I have a, a Lulu in my uh, system. Um, I'll, for all the listeners, look up what a Lulu means that you have for uh, electronic devices. It's scary stuff. But yeah. Yeah. And, and we have there's certain sound waves. We know that we can only hear in a certain spectrum and other animals can hear other things. And we can. So we have physical, physical blind spots. We also have psychological blind spots and cognitive blind spots. And um, just the ability that we have to focus on things. So you've, I remember when I was taking tennis lessons years ago, <laughs> you know, the teacher would tell you to focus on one aspect of your swing. And when you focused on that, you forgot about all the 10 other parts of this. <laughs> That's me in golf, brother. So I don't play it. Yeah. So, I mean, just the ability we have, you focus on one thing, you're not focusing on the hundreds of other things that you could be focusing on. So we have those kind of blind spots and you, you have, we have blind spots related to our beliefs that we have. We have blind spots related to these automatic ways of looking at things that, that get conditioned into us and get triggered all the time. Um, and so blind spots is a really big aspect of what it means to be human. And then the, the second thing is what I call automaticity. 
uh, which basically means that we get conditioned, we get programmed as we go through life from the time we're little kids. Uh, and, and things start, things happen around us every day and they trigger us and we respond automatically. However, we've been programmed. And, and a lot of it depends on your history and your influences and your family and, you know, who impacted you and made an impression on you and what you read and saw and the movies you've seen, the books, everything tends to all get at some level, many, much of it gets built into our bodies and then things happen and we just get triggered. And again, a lot of things that will get triggered have blind spots in them, which we don't see. So not only do we have blind spots, but we're blind to the fact that we have blind spots. You know, so, so for example, from a anatomical standpoint, we have a, there's a blind spot in the back of our retina where the optic nerve comes through. Uh, there's a, there's, there should be a hole in our visual field because there's no receptors in that um, area where the optic nerve comes in and sort of in the middle, near the middle of our retina. So we should have a blind spot, but we don't. Our bodies just sort of compensate for it and make us give us a continuous field of vision as if there really isn't a blind spot, but there is. So again, we're blind to the fact that we have a blind spot. And that's that's one example, but there's hundreds and hundreds of them, of similar examples of how we, we have these blind spots and we don't see them. You speak to the awareness, self-awareness there. Yeah, yeah. And that's what a lot of self-awareness is, the discovering the blind spots that you've had. Maybe you've had for many, many years, and you suddenly wake up one day and say, oh, my God, I had this blind spot. I never knew I had that. I wonder what's in there. <laughs> that never takes place unless somebody's humble enough to question the self at first. Yeah. And then so then the third that third piece is about being wrong. So there's blind spots, there's automaticity, and there's actually the opposite of being wrong, our, our tremendous desire to be right all the time and to never question anything, to not realize we have blind spots, to not realize we're functioning on automatic behavior most of the time. And th that's like a triple whammy right there. And it's all part, these are absolutely part of being human. We all have blind spots. We all function automatically in many uh, aspects. Uh, and, um, and, and we all seem to be conditioned in our society to want to be right, to need to be right, to value being right, and to abhor being wrong. And that's where a lot of stress comes from. And we even have that, and we have that same problem with our understanding of what stress is. So we make the yeah, same kind of blind spots and mistakes about that, you know? Yeah, I use it a, an example when I talk to certain people to, about stress, because we all know, right? We all understand, well, I, I'm going to say we all don't know. You know, they put it out that stress is the number one killer, which I believe. And to put that uh, in reference for people, I always say, look, imagine you got your favorite car of all time. You just bought it. You love it. You got it painted your favorite color. And you walk around with a ball-peen hammer. And every time you experience stress or anxiety or depression, I want you to just, ping, just hit the car. <laughs> yeah. And then ask yourself, what would your paint job look like by the end of the day? Yep. And, and we, again, that's a blind spot we have. We don't see that li those little tiny increments of damage over years. Well, really I, I got to ask, gotta, what is stress, Doc? Well, I mean, people really don't know what it is. What is it? What happens biologically? You know, what what is it? Well, I think we have to back up even even more than that. The, the truth is, and the truth is, which most people don't want to hear. And um, they probably won't like it when I say it, but it's true. 
the truth is all stress is it, it's a word it's a term we didn't have stress you know 50 50 years ago actually let me see back no 100 years ago we didn't have stress the term wasn't even used we had stuff going on we had anxiety we had anger we had all that stuff okay but yeah. we didn't have this term we didn't have this term stress to talk about it okay right right it was invented by a guy named the term was invented by a guy named hans selye who's credited as being the the pioneer of modern stress research and he was a uh, a physician he was an endocrinologist born in austria came over to canada did most of his work as, uh, as a researcher at mcgill university in montreal and he's the guy that originally figured out all the hormonal responses and he took laboratory animals put them in cages shocked them exposed them to different noxious things and measured the physiologic responses in the body and figured all that stuff out and um and, and brought this term he actually borrowed the term stress from engineering you know there was this, in engineering there was a stress strain model where you take a slab of metal you put it in a chamber expose it to heat and different forces to see you know what the disruption when the when the thing disrupted or How broke apart the beam take right yeah yeah so it was a stress strain model in physics he said well that's very similar I, I like that it's very similar to what i'm doing and and what he said was he said i'm i know i'm starting a new field of science here I'm, going to, I'm publishing all these papers. I'm going to have a whole community of scientists. We're going to be studying this phenomenon. We got to come up with a language, you know, to communicate. So, and, and he even says the first, the first book he ever wrote for the general public, he published in 1956, called "The Stress of Life." And in in the very early part of that book, he has a caution to to readers. He says, "Now you got to understand. Don't forget, stress is just an abstraction." It's just it's just something I had to make up <laughs> because I needed something that we, we needed to have a way to communicate, you know, and, and publish papers and all this stuff. But it's not it doesn't have any real existence. OK, it's just a concept. And, uh, and of course, nobody paid any attention to that. Um, and we've gone we kept marching on as if there's this new disease called stress. And it's even worse to even think that you can deal with stress. If the question you're asking yourself is, how can I deal with stress? It's like asking yourself, what can I do about these, all these unicorns, you know, that are in my garden? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a stupid question. It's, it, you're, you're already down the wrong path if that's what you're doing. So stress is just a word and it's a word that stands for other things that really do exist. So what are the, what is stress a word for? It's basically a word for problems. Whenever we say we're stressed, we're not suffering from stress we're suffering from problems and there's a lot of different problems we can be suffering from <laughs> and you can have one big problem that's causing you a lot of uh difficulty or you can have a bunch of little problems or a whole combination of stuff but they're very specific problems and we use this same term called stress to refer to all of them including the physical problems that result you know, all those stress hormones and all, you know, all that stuff's real. All that research is true, but it's only half the story. You know, that's actually the end. That's the end result of the story. The, it's like if I, if I took a picture of a horse, cut it in half and just showed you the tail end of the horse and only half the half of the animal. And I said, is that a horse? You would say, no, that's that's not the whole story. That's not the whole animal. That's just the tail end. Well, when you just look at the body and what's going on in the body physiologically, 
you know, and say, that's what stress is. Stress is a physical physiologic response. We can measure it with hormones. We can study it. We can do research. Bullshit. That's half the story. Wow. Okay. Where wow. did that stuff come from? <laughs> Why is the body reacting that way when it shouldn't be? It's because all these problems we're having in life that are driving that stuff. Now, of course you get, if you get health problems, that's a problem. You know, that's why I spent 23 years seeing people in my office every day that were stressed out because they were sick or they had high blood pressure or they had heart disease or they were disabled or you get sick or even fear of getting sick can, can stress you out. But um, so, yeah, physical problems can be problems, but there's relationship problems, emotional problems, financial problems, work problems, you know, uh, spiritual problems, religious, there's all, all kinds of problems that we can have that uh, we use the same general term, stress, to refer to. And it's not the stress we want relief from, it's those problems. So if, if people can make that one little cognitive change, which is not so little, but if, if they make that change and every time they hear the word stress, they substitute the word problems, it would take them down a very different path. Well, it gives you something to actually attack, something to to uh, you know get ready for, st- strategize against. If yes, you're right, yes. it's kind of like the war on terror, the war on drugs. Drugs aren't bad. I mean, there's a million drugs. Or it's like saying I like sports. Well, what ping pong or rugby? Right. You, you know? got to get specific. If you're really going to address your problems, you got to get specific. But that's not what people are being taught to do today in this stress management world we live in. <laughs> and one of the slides I use when I'm talking about this. Is I there's a, I have a, a really pretty slide of a a um, a, gil, a gold plated shopping cart. <laughs> it's an empty shopping cart, you know. And I said, what we're being taught today is to take all of our problems and throw them into one big basket and call that basket stress. Okay, and then ask ourselves, how can I deal with my stress? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I just pushed the card over the over the edge. <laughs> and you know, and that's actually that is an okay strategy if all you want to do is deal with the symptoms of your stress. You know, if all you want to do with the symptoms, dump them all into a big basket, call it stress, and say, okay, now what can I do to deal with my symptoms? Well, I can use alcohol. I can use alcohol to deal with my symptoms. I can use drugs. I can use heroin. I can use, uh, I can even go to the doctor and get a prescription medication if I want to deal with my stress. Or I can be, you know, uh, I can be, I can realize all the problems with that. I'm going to do healthier stuff, things. I'm going to do yoga. I'm going to do relaxation. I'm going to do Tai Chi, meditation, um, deep breathing exercises. You can do, I'm going to get a punching bag. You can do all those things to deal with your symptoms. But again, it's just a healthier way of dealing with symptoms, you know? I'm so, so glad you best- that, man, because even in drug treatment, it's about they treat the drugs or et cetera, but these are symptoms, you know, no one's treating the person. And I love that you point this out and that you're an MD brave enough to jump out and say, listen, we're stress is symptoms. It's not specific. It doesn't fucking mean anything. <laughs> That's right. Well, it means problems. And, yeah, and the trick is the trick to really deal. If you want to go after causes, okay. If you want to go after problems effectively, you got to deal with their causes at some level. Otherwise, they're just going to keep coming back. And that's the problem with alcohol, drugs. And if, you, if that's your stress strategy is every time you have symptoms, you use alcohol, drugs, whatever, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to keep using them. That's why people get addicted because the, the problems never go away. So, and that, if that becomes their solution, then that's all they know how to do. That's what they do. You know? 
um, until until they suffer the physical effects of the of the chemical addiction. Uh, and then they, now they got a whole new problem on top of the ones that, that that they still have that haven't gone away, you know, to any degree anyway. And the same, but the same thing occurs when you use stress management techniques. You're just dealing with symptoms, so your problems are never going away. If you really you want your problems to go away, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just saying you could breathe all you want to, right? You could sit there, count back from 10, do your breathing. The problem's still there. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, the example I like to give is, you know, if somebody's getting angry, you know, 10, 20 times every day, you know, and they put a punching bag in their office and a punching bag in their uh, in their basement at home. And, and, you know, three or four times a day, they work out on that bag and they dissipate all that tension that's building up in them. Good for them. Great. That's a good thing to do. However, are they going to be any less angry the next day? or the day after that, or the day after that. No, no. Until they get at the roots of why they're getting angry 10 or 20 times a day, and most people aren't, okay? How are they looking at the world and, and interpreting things and seeing things that is driving all that anger that they don't understand, that we just showed them how to understand, you know, in five minutes, uh, but it's, it's a lot harder than that for people to accept it and to work with it, but, but we could lay it out there in five minutes and then you can work with people to well, show them. Look, it, it took the MD 10 years to agree with your uncle and his yeah. proof. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There's a, um, one of my favorite books is called the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn written many years ago. And he's a, he's a, he was a historian, I think, at uh, a university, University of Chicago or someplace in Chicago. And he was interested in the phenomenon of, of scientific breakthroughs and how long it took for them once they occurred. And it was realized that they were real. You know, how long did it take for them to become mainstream and the predominant mindset and the old mindset, you know, fall by the wayside? OK, so he looked back throughout his history. He looked at all these things like the discovery of X-rays, uh, Cop uh, Copernicus, you know, and his uh, his view of, you know, that, you know, the, that the Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. Um, all the discovery of uh, uh, of oxygen, all these things that were monumental, huge breakthroughs. And what he found was there was a consistent timeline that it took like about 75 years before the original breakthrough became mainstream. Well, what happened in the beginning, the original breakthrough would happen. The original breakthrough would happen and be tremendous resistance against it. And everybody would poo-poo it and they would deny it and they would actually aggressively work against it to discredit the people that found it, to find all kinds of fault with it. And, and it's little by little, you know, almost similar to what I told you with my uncle and it was a little bit you know, shorter period, but it, it, it took like 75 years before these things became the prevailing, everybody accepts this viewpoint now, state of affairs. And you know what the conclusion was that he drew from that? What? Why, it, why it was the same pattern all throughout history? He said, it takes 75 years because you have to wait for all the people who, who had the original beliefs that were shattered, they have to die. <laughs> And the new people have to come up because they won't let go of their beliefs. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, we're looking at this right now with marijuana and psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I assume that with the uh, with all social media and the way the speed of the way things get uh, disseminated these days, that the timeline has probably shortened with with those recent developments. But back in those days, they, they didn't have all that stuff to accelerate. Right. Write a new yeah. book there, or a revision to that with uh, new age internet technology and things going viral. Yeah, so I'm sure that the the time 
well, I don't know, but if uh, it depends how many people change their mind, but there's still some of them that'll link, you know, there's still people today with rotary phones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, we could just look in the political field. You know what I mean? Let's pull from there where people still are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So there is some truth to that, that some people, you know, we just so tenaciously hold on to our beliefs that no matter what evidence or, um, uh, you know, truth comes our way, we, we just doesn't matter. You know, that cognitive dissonance just stays there. Yep. yep. I mean, I got a question for you. I mean, you've been in practice a long time um, and I wondered, have you seen a rise, if you will, in people coming to you for anxiety or stress management, if you will? I think there is. I think the the pace of change that's happening um, uh, in our society is, is has been accelerated and that's stressful for people. The, the, all the distractions that we have now that we didn't used to have um, provides a whole new set of challenges for people. Um, all the stuff that's going on with the economy and the way the business world has responded and that, uh, you know, businesses are changing more fluidly and being acquired more frequently. And the fear is always there in the background. I mean, it's not like the old days where you go to work for a company and you're assured, you know, if you do a decent job and you're loyal to the company that you'll have a position, you know, it's, everything's up in the air now. And, uh, it, it's, every, yeah, it's, it's just a lot more uncertainty. There's a lot more, um, uh, flux. There's a lot more uh, need to adapt. Adapt to th- new things coming down the pike. You know, a lot more supposed tos. It seems like. Yeah, and then you get all that stuff. You get all the uh, you get all the brainwashing and political correctness and this and that. You know, what, what about kids, Doc? I mean, did you see a rise? Because I, I I saw it when I was in practice, and I I was stunned to the amount of parents that were bringing me twelve year olds and fourteen year olds riddled with anxiety from school and education and college, etc. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see it a lot, my because I don't deal with you know the pediatric age group um, that much, okay. but I hear but I hear that and I see evidence of that. You know, they're even doing uh, they're even doing um, like mindful meditation in elementary schools now. I mean, the, the kids are talking about being stressed and uh, complaining about being stressed. And, um, you know, when I was at the high school giving the um, uh, giving the talk, I, uh, the faculty member who was sponsoring the group that that put this on, you know, I asked her, you know, what is she seeing in the way of stress? in the high school students. And a lot of it, uh, she said that, you know, they had a real mix of students there. They had a lot of Asian students there um, uh, that, that particularly among the Asian students, there was this, uh, a lot of parental pressure to get into the best colleges, to get the best grades. And the kids were really feeling it. And it's not just, you know, it's not just Asian uh, parents and kids that, that have that going on today. Um, you know, all the, the, parents, you know, the parents that want their kids to be uh, um, athletes and get scholarships and become pros and just all kinds of pressures on kids that uh, that are mounting and, and social pressures. And, and, and the, the social media is putting, you know, all the kids now are being bullied on social media or afraid of being bullied and the suicides that have occurred from that and the stress that occurs from people saying nasty things about you on social media or, or even that it could happen one day. You know, it's all very... Uh, uh, it's more than what we had to deal with, you know, when we were growing up and we had our own stuff, but you know, yeah, it seems like life. there's this huge comparison lifestyle now, you know, this, this continuous con uh, consistent comparison between them and you and what yeah. you're doing, what you should be doing. It, it does seem to rise, you know, I, I'll leave you. Uh, I know we're kind of coming uh, where you got to run, but I got a few, a few more questions, man, about sure. uh, directly. Um, 
you know, I'll end with probably that one. It's, it's in my mind. What would you tell you spend a lot of time talking to the, you know, kids and people, uh, what would you tell MDs directly or those practitioners out there that are, are talking about stress that are helping their, their patients deal with stress? What would you tell those practitioners to begin to tell, um, their clients and patients? You talking about doc? You talking about a typical doctor who's seeing patients, or a doctor that has an interest in stress and is out there help trying to help people? Uh, either because most, because most doctors they see it, but they don't have any skills or ability to deal with it, so they ignore it to some degree. Um, but there are people. I mean, there's stress experts and stress counselors and psychologists and people that are you know say come to me i'll help you with my stress um which which of those two groups do you want me to address well first the question is to the actual uh practitioners doctors mds therapists counselors even that are talking to their clients about stress themselves i mean you know what i'm going to make it two-part what would you say they need to start telling their clients about stress and then two what would you tell them on how they should begin to deal with their own stress well that's a great point because um there is a lot of stress and in, 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 an increasing amount of stress in the health professions, all health professions today. And the, those folks need help. And a lot of times they're neglected. You know, they're, they're, they have a tendency to be uh, sort of martyrs in a sense of uh, sacrificing their own health and well-being in the service of their patients. And um, that can be a real problem. And so there's a definite need for people to um, be of assistance to health and for health professionals to be open to honestly looking at what's going on in their lives and, and um, are they truly happy? Are they doing well mentally and, and spiritually? And um, yeah, they may be doing well financially, but is that all there is? And is that the most, even the most important thing as far as the quality of their lives are concerned? And if not, you know, don't be too proud um, or too much in denial, you know, to, to not do something about it. For the people who are teaching, uh, see, I think the problem is we're keep indoctrinating people into the stress management mindset, and it's, it's damaging. It, it, it has positive aspects in terms of there are health benefits, particularly when you're not turning to drugs or alcohol and stuff, but if you're doing the more healthy things. So the, the, there's nothing wrong with those techniques per se, but to, to, promote that as the be all and end all for dealing with stress and the way to think about, because it's not just a set of practices. It's a, it's a philosophy and it's an understanding. It's, it's different from what we've just been talking about, uh, how to look at stress. Well, I think is the best way. And so I would, you know, exp say they should really look at some of the things that I'm talking about. And I'm not the only one out there, by the way, that's singing this tune. There aren't that many of us, but there are other people who've recognized the, the, weakness of the way we're currently teaching people to think about stress and have written books about it and are out there talking about it. So um, I would say get in, get more in tune with what the people who are um, criticizing the stress management model are saying and be willing to listen to their point of view and see what they, what they are revealing about the um, difficulties with that model and the assumptions that underlie it. That's what I would say. That takes me right in the last question, actually. You almost answered it. The very last question I saved um, is, you know, what is your life philosophy? My life philosophy. Um, well, I believe that, see, I believe that life is not stressful. That, and I acknowledge at the same time, having said that, there's a hell of a lot of stress that people experience. So if those two things are true, if we're experiencing a lot of stress, 
but life itself is not stressful, then the conclusion is, well, somehow we're generating a lot of that stress and we don't know it. It's in our blind spot <laughs> or blind spots. <laughs> and I think that I think that's the, the other way you can look at it, which a lot of people do, unfortunately, is that, well, life is just stressful and that's there's nothing you can do about it. You yeah. know, either it, way, it seems passive. Yeah. I mean, it's just I'm a victim. Uh, it's just the way life is. And uh, it's, you just got to, you know, hang in there with it, deal with it as best you can. And but the idea that you can live a stress free life, that that just is unrealistic. Um, I look at it the other way. I say, you know, well, we're supposed to be living stress-free lives. How come we're not? You know, what are we doing to ourselves? How do we get here? You know, it wasn't, it, it didn't happen by accident. Uh, and and it, it's not natural, but it's, it, it's here. It's, we're, we're living it. And uh, we can, and once we understand how it's happening or how we got here, uh, we can figure out ways to uh, compensate for it, overcome it, and and change some of the ways we think about things and way we approach things, and we can really live relatively stress free, uh, relatively stress free lives. We can't eliminate problems, you know, but we can get better at solving them, better at identifying their causes, um, particularly the ones we don't see very easily, the inside, the ones inside us. We all we all easily see the causes that are outside of us, but we don't the ones you know the thought patterns, the beliefs. The things that you know you talk about that I talk about, we don't see those so easily. Um, but but that, that's what you got to be able to do. You got to be able to figure out what some of those are that you can't see so well. And and so that's my philosophy. My philosophy is that uh, if we're stressed, something's something's going wrong. And I don't know what it is necessarily, but I can figure. I can probably figure it out if I really put my mind to it, or get some help from somebody to you know figure it out. So I would say overall, that's my philosophy. I tend to, so that's what I tend to focus on rather, not that I don't like stress management um, or don't think it has value. I tend not to focus any of my teaching or training on it because it's so available. If anybody wants to learn how to do it, they can do it. Uh, but I see it as a symptom oriented uh, practice for the most part, not a hundred percent. I mean, there's some meditative practices that'll get at causes, other things get at causes, but mostly it's symptomatic. So I try to help people understand the, the these causes that are in their blind spots. So I call the hidden causes, invisible causes. And that's what sort of my mission is, you know, to, to enhance people's awareness about that and that whole model of looking at stress that way. And uh, that's, that's what I'm busy doing. Uh, well, I want to change <laughs> the write up immediately that says stress management expert, because man, I now, I see this now. It's, it's why you live the cognitive rampage because you are out there at this time in the Freudian type essence, if you will, saying, listen, it's not because you want to sleep with your mom. Stress isn't even a thing. We're making it something. You really yep. are on that cutting edge of saying what everyone else is not saying about stress. You, you live that cognitive rampage, doc. Yes, I do. That's why I was attracted to your work. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Where and speaking of that, where can everybody find your work or or buy your books or do everything? Where where can they get in touch with you? All that. Well, they, I, I've got books on Amazon. They just look up their my last name Orman. It's not the Susie Orman. It's the other Orman. Um, <laughs> they. Um, uh, my website is docorman.com. D o c o r m a n. Dot com. So it's spelled the same way Susie spells her last name, but um, so it's Doc Orman. And then the thing I would encourage, I would invite people to do, I, I just started a Facebook group, a private Facebook group called the League of Extraordinary Stress Eliminators. I like <laughs> so that. First, 
First, I'd like to invite you to join if you'd like. Yeah. Um, just go to just go to Facebook and search for the League of Stress. Just put a League of Stress, and there aren't many other choices that'll come up. Um, there's a page, a Facebook regular Facebook page, and then there's a private group page uh, that'll come up. And the private group, if you read the description, there's a little application that you have to fill out to set the you know, see if it, if you really want to be in this group and I'll tell you what to tell you what it's all about you submit that application and then you you hit the join group button on the Facebook page I'll get the application I'll look at it if if you don't answer the questions in a bizarre way I will usually let people in but um sometimes they skip that step and I can't let them in because they haven't done the application piece yet so but uh, anybody who wants to check that out just go to Facebook look up the league of stress eliminators and um You'll see the description there when you get to that page. It's about the only thing you'll be able to see when you get there, and uh, and it'll explain all about what the group's about. So that's where we that's where we have a group of people who are interested in what we're talking about today, interested in in all of us interested in helping each other get better awareness about these internal causes and our the beliefs and thought patterns and behavior patterns that can be stress generating and how we can overcome them. So. Oh, man, I appreciate you being on the show. Um, is uh, we'll have you back on uh, a couple months or something like that, and you come back? Sure, absolutely. Oh, that'll be great, man. I, I appreciate it, and uh, I, I thank you for being on uh, again, uh, Doctor Mort Orman. You uh, bring a change, man. You really do belong to the tribe of change. Now that you've been on the show, you will also be added to the group <laughs> of tribe of change. All right, great. I appreciated the over ecstaticness of which that honor bestows to reveals itself. <laughs> oh, uh, thank you. I actually, I have three pages of notes, man. I, uh, I love this. I will be studying all this and reading over it and sharing it. I, I love doing it. Thank you once again, man. I, I appreciate it very much. You're very welcome. Have a good afternoon, bud. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed uh, that. I, uh, I I sometimes I get hit with so much competence and excited so much that you know I can't even I can't sit still or not interrupt. And uh, you know, Doc really was touching. I I don't know why I have to call everybody that's a doctor Doc. I, maybe it's I'm an '80s baby, a Back to the Future or something. I don't know, but I, I do. And you know what he said about anger. I know everyone can take away from and and use that you know use those cards sometimes they say you got to be willing to get a little crazy to get a little sane and doing things like writing on cards pulling those out talking to yourself these are things you got to be willing to do and you know what for some of you out there it may seem crazy to question yourself that you actually may be wrong and uh you heard it from the md man himself here that you know that's where his change started and dealing with anxiety and stress or I don't know. I'm not even going to say stress anymore. Dealing with problems, as he's been saying. So I, I will change my tune as well when I'm talking to clients or friends or even myself. Uh, I'm not going to use the word stress anymore because it's too vague. It's just like I argue about saying drugs. So you know what? That's something I'm taking away from me right now that uh, you probably can too. Uh, probably all that. I mean, the three pin principles, blind spots, automaticity, concrete awareness, unawareness that we all... Uh, parts of being human there's so much there and it's it's guys like dr orman and ladies out there too that are willing to step into the unknown challenge themselves and like his uncle did challenge the norms and hopefully things like this aren't taking 75 years anymore to change and uh it's due to guys like dr mort orman who live in a cognitive 
rampage. So I, I hope you're taking care of you. The bo- the book always is out on Amazon. Uh, the podcast is doing what it's doing. We have uh, my workshop is showing we got 10, 10 big guest speakers showing off at the Cognitive Rampage workshop called Doses of Change. That'll be in Okoy, Florida over at the Fusion Performance or the Fusion XL Performance Lab. That's where we do all of our mental training. Uh, that's where we do all of our workshops and talks because, uh, yeah, that's where we do it. I think that's all the news. Uh, not much else to say after that. There's just there's a lot to digest there. I love being fed competence with a fire hose, uh, and sometimes I hate turning it off. But he said he'll be back, so you hear, you'll hear from uh, Dr. Moore Orman again. And uh, thank you for listening. I love all of you, as I say it every time. Keep taking care of you and keep living your cognitive rampage. Love you.